Greetings to all of you this morning. It's, it is a beautiful morning to be together, to be gathered in the house of God. And uh, we certainly have already been blessed, been encouraged this morning. It's my desire that we can continue to feed on the Word of God and to be encouraged in Him. Uh, this morning I'm not preaching from the book of Colossians. I'd like to uh, speak this morning on the grace of God. Um, kind of, kind of uh, what I'd like to talk about is, is start out by looking at grace. What is grace? Who is who does God give His grace to? Um, kind of an introduction to grace, maybe from the Old Testament. And then I'd like to think of grace in the New Testament, and particularly how God gives His people sustaining grace. And then I'd like to also look at a, a story from our heritage of a man who was able to experience the grace of God in a very real way. So let's begin this morning in Genesis chapter 6, familiar story of Noah. And... Um, the first time in the Bible that the word grace is used is here in, in Genesis chapter 6. Thinking of the grace of God. Genesis 6 verse 1. <clears throat> and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And he goes on and tells Noah uh, the specifications of how he was to build this great ark. And Noah went and did what God told him to do. But then in verse 22, yet in the, in the chapter... Six, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So, we know the story. God created man, 
He created everything in the earth. It was perfect. He saw that it was good. He proclaimed it to be good. But sin came through Adam, through Eve, and <coughs> sin worked its havoc in the world. And the process and cycles of death was established and uh, man began to fall away from God. And here we are, um, so a thousand, fifteen hundred years removed from the creation, whatever it was, and man was very, very wicked. The world that God had created fell out of favor with God. God said, it is no longer good. It says here in chapter 6 that my spirit will not always strive with man. God saw the wickedness of man was great. And it says it repented the Lord that he had made man. He was sorry that he had ever created him in the first place. It grieved him at his heart. God was displeased with man. They had fallen from God's favor and grace. And God said, I'm going to bring judgment. I will destroy man and every living creature from the face of the earth. And he uh, said, told Noah he's going to bring a great flood. And then he told Noah um, how to build the ark and so on. But, but verse um, 8 in this chapter is, is kind of a, a break in this terrible picture of despair. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And while everyone else had fallen out of God's favor, Noah found grace and favor from God. The Strong's um, concordance strongs gives the definition for this hebrew word the hebrew word for the word grace is the word uh it's pronounced cane it looks like c-h-e-n cane I, I guess that's the right pronunciation but it means kindness or favor and the the root of that word is is that the idea of bending or stooping in kindness to an inferior and that's what god did the Almighty Creator, infinite God, bent down, stooped down to the earth. He showed kindness and favor to Noah and his family. He extended grace to him. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, why did he select Noah from all of these people in the earth? We often hear that Grace is God's undeserved merit or favor to us. And that's very true in a sense. None of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve the grace of God upon our lives. We don't merit it. But I also believe that this account of Noah discredits the, um, the idea of cheap grace where um, everyone who names the name of Christ can have the grace of God flowing onto their lives um, receive love and forgiveness regardless of the fruit coming out of their lives. I don't see that picture here in the life of Noah. God does not extend free, unlimited grace to those unwilling to live in obedience to Christ. Going against God results in falling out of his favor. That's what happened to the men and, and God's creation, the people, the vast, vast majority of them, they fell out of God's grace. Everyone but Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah's life shows that there is a direct connection 
between the grace of God and the fruit coming out of his life. And we can see that. Verse 9 says that Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generation. It says Noah walked with God. And uh, again, verse 22, he did all that God commanded him to do. And verse uh, chapter 7, verse 1, God said, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God saw Noah. He saw a man whose heart was turned towards him. And it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'd like to, to call your attention to that phrase that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I noticed something about the word grace in the Old Testament while I was um, studying this sermon. While looking through Strong's Concordance, almost every single time that the word grace is used in the Old Testament, it's used with the phrase um, in his sight or in his eyes. Um, such as uh, some examples would be Joseph found grace in the eyes of Potiphar. Ruth found grace in the eyes of Boab, Boaz. And um, Hannah asked Eli for grace in his sight. And it, it's just over and over again in the Old Testament. It says here that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I believe that Noah found grace in God's eyes because God had been watching his character and his conduct. He saw in Noah a man whose heart was right, whose heart was turned toward God. A man who would do what God asked him to do. Noah was not sinless. We understand that. He had his humanity to deal with. He was a man just like we are. He had sin to deal with. But he was a just man, and he walked with God, and he did what was right, and God saw it, and Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 33 and 34. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. So God reaches down and gives his grace to the humble, to the meek, to the repentant, to those whose heart is turned towards God, the poor in spirit, those who are suffering. But he resists the proud, the Bible tells us. He scorns the scorner. It's his curse, says in Proverbs, not his grace that is on the house of the wicked and on those who refuse his call and his invitation. That's maybe a bit of a summary of the word grace in the Old Testament. And I'd like to look now at grace in the New Testament. The Greek word for grace is the word charis. Strong's definition is divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life of a person. Divine influence upon the heart. I think that's a... That's a a definition I want to remember about grace. It's God's influence and favor on our lives. Blessing. Uh, there's a lot of things included there. The word grace is used 
well over 100 times in the New Testament, there's only one time where it's not this word charis, where it doesn't mean God's um, divine or divine influence upon the heart. And that one exception is in James chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, The sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his eyes. So that's the one time in the New Testament where grace does not mean divine influence. It rather means um, a good suitableness is the uh, exact words from Strong's. Good suitableness or gracefulness. The flower uh, thereof falleth. The sun comes up, withers the grass. The flower falleth and its gracefulness is gone. It perishes. It perishes. It says, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. But every, every other time in the New Testament, the word charis is used. It means God's influence, his favor, his goodwill is manifested and poured out on our lives. And often in the New Testament, grace is used specifically as God's influence and work on our lives through salvation, the role it plays in in saving our souls. The saving grace of God is a phrase that, that we could use there. It's the divine influence that draws us to God and works redemption in our hearts. And we have that used that way all through the scriptures. Some of the more familiar ones, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. The grace of God in the work of salvation is an incredible gift to us. He didn't owe it to us. We don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. It's out of the pure goodness and love of his heart that he has given us of his grace. And we have experienced forgiveness and pardon from our sins and newness of life and transformation and the power to walk the way that he has asked us to walk because of his grace, because of that influence from himself poured out on our lives. But God's grace is not limited to the original work of salvation and conversion. He keeps on pouring out his grace. He keeps on giving even as we continue on the journey of uh, the walk that he asks us to do. He keeps on pouring out himself in love, compassion, tender care, um, goodness, benevolence, all of those things that we experience from him. God's grace is also a grace that equips us to do the work he calls us to. It's a grace that empowers and enables us and gives us strength when we don't have any of our own. It's a sustaining grace when we have no other sustenance. It's his keeping power when we go through the darkest times. It's a grace that anchors and gives us hope through suffering and even death. And this is the aspect of God's sermon or God's grace sorry, that I would like to, to focus on in the rest of the sermon. 
this sustaining grace that God gives to his children is there is no limit to it. God does not limit it. He doesn't hold it back in any way. When we need grace, he gives it liberally. Many times Paul and the other New Testament authors, when they write about grace, they use, they use, they speak of its abundance and its availability. And we have phrases in the New Testament like the abundance of grace and sin abounded, but grace did much more abound. And Ephesians 1 speaks of the riches of his grace. And, and as if that's not enough, in chapter 2, Paul adds to that and says it's the exceeding riches of his grace. And then my own personal favorite is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. That verse is it's just, it's all, 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 everything. The grace of God is just, it's abounding, it's available. We have everything that we need. It's all sufficiency that we may abound in every good work. And uh, I just love the, the theme of abundance and and liberality that comes flowing out of that verse. That's the picture we get of God's grace in the New Testament. Now we understand that God has not promised us lives that are free from pain and from suffering and hard things to go through. But he does. He has promised us abundant grace for whatever situation we may face, whatever difficulty may have come into our lives. We live in a broken world, a world where even Christians deal with pain and the effects of sin. And um, we understand those things, even as a congregation, perhaps in a very real way. Um, this week, more so than sometimes. It's a world of losing loved ones. We have widows in this congregation who have lost their husbands to sickness, to death. Um, this world is a world of sickness and disease. We have people in our congregation on wheelchairs. We know what it's like to have diseases. We have people fighting cancer. We live in a world of broken relationships. We have family members. Some of you have family members who are not in a good place spiritually. It's a broken world. There's situations that we don't understand. And many times when, when these things come to us, we struggle to understand and we ask, why did this happen to me, God? Why did you bring this to my family? Did this really need to happen? Could I have done something different? And, and we have these, these things wrestle. We wrestle with these things in our minds. God does not ask us to understand why he brings suffering and hard circumstances in our, into our lives. But he does ask us to reach out and receive the grace from him to see us through. He wants to give us his grace. 
He wants to sustain us and to give us strength to go on. He wants to carry us by that grace that he gives. He wants to anchor us to himself. Annie Johnson Flint wrote a a poem or a song. I'm not sure how she intended it in the original writing, but it is a song. It is a hymn today. But the title of, of the words that she wrote is, He giveth more. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has filled ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's our God. That's the grace that he wants to give to every one of you who may be going through a hard time this morning. We have an example from Paul. I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, I'll begin in verse 6. We, under, we, we usually call this um, Paul's thorn in the flesh. And this is what he says, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul said he had this thorn in the flesh and he asked, God, three times apparently he asked God to remove this thing from him. We don't know what, exactly what this thorn in the flesh was, if it was a, a sickness that he had, or um, some people think it was his eyesight because it's, it seems we have some clues from the scriptures that Paul wasn't able to see the best. He was blinded by the light 
the glory of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And some people believe that that was something that affected him all his life. And perhaps this was the thorn in the flesh that Paul wanted removed. He wanted to be able to see so that he could write or so that he could uh, see his audience when he talks to them. We don't know. But he asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh, this affliction that had come upon him. And apparently God did not grant him his request. But Paul says, this is the answer that I got. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I guess Paul could have looked at this answer from God in two ways. He could have, he could have looked at it um, from a fleshly perspective and said that, you know, I have been denied what is rightfully mine. God is withholding from me what I need. God is keeping what is good for me. He's keeping it. Uh, we know that Paul did not take that perspective. Sometimes we take that perspective when God doesn't give us the answer that we're looking for. But Paul took the second perspective of looking at it as Jesus said to him, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace will be enough. It will sustain you. God is giving me all the resources of his grace to carry me through this situation. His grace will satisfy. His grace will be enough. His grace will sustain me. His grace is everything I need. And I can be satisfied with that because it will sustain and keep me. Paul says here um, in verse 9, he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Remember, the grace of God is His divine influence on our lives. And I believe that Paul was able to get a hold of that concept and say that no, or yes, maybe God didn't remove his affliction, but he saw that God's power and influence would be able to rest upon him in a greater way by his grace sustaining him through what God had brought. And sometimes we, we think that the power of God would be, you know, it's easy for us to think that, that the power of God being manifested would have been God removing this thorn in the flesh from Paul. But Paul recognized that accepting God's grace was perhaps the greater miracle of the power of God resting on his life. Think about the example of the nickel mine school shooting we're all familiar with that. It's happened in most of our lifetimes. You know, the world was moved. The entire world was moved and influenced by the example of the Amish and the forgiveness that they offered to the family of the one of the shooter who had come into the schoolhouse and killed their daughters. They offered forgiveness 
They accepted it. They were resigned to it. And I'm sure they struggled. They had many things to work through, just like we all do. But the world saw their example of them accepting what God had brought and carrying, letting His grace carry them through it. We would think, human reasoning would say, that the power of God would have come down and prevented that from happening and somehow kept that awful tragedy from happening. But if that would have happened, if God would have prevented that from happening, the influence of His grace would not have gone out into the world in the way that it did. That was a tremendous testimony to the world of the grace of God working in the lives of his people, the way they responded to it. I like to think now yet of a man from our faith heritage. Most of you probably are familiar with this story. Some of you may not be. Michael Sattler was a um, born in the Black Forest area of southern Germany around 1495. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a time frame in world history, Columbus discovered America in 1492. So Michael Sattler, born just a few years after um, Columbus discovered America. <clears throat> he became a Catholic monk, and this was, of course, um, during the pre-Reformation era, <clears throat> excuse me, just before the, the Protestant Reformation in Europe, things were in an uproar and a turmoil. All of these changes were sweeping through the Catholic Church. People were dissatisfied. And Michael Sattler, as he became a monk, and as a monk, a young monk, he began to study the epistles of Paul, and he started to realize that there is a lot of corruption and immorality in the Catholic Church, and he became dissatisfied with it, and he started to study the Scriptures. And eventually, he came to the place where he said, I am in an unchristian and dangerous estate. Those are his own words. And he eventually left um, the monastery. He married a wife. He came into um, contact with, under the influence of Anabaptism, right around the time that it was beginning in in uh, Zurich in Switzerland. Went down into the city, and he um, was influenced by it. And later on, in 1525, this would have been the year that. Conrad Grebel and Felix Mons and George Blorock were baptized. They baptized each other and it was the birth of Anabaptism. So right after, soon after that, that same year, Michael Sattler was converted. He became a follower of Jesus. He, uh, he uh, became an Anabaptist. And perhaps his, probably his best known work is um, later on, a few years wasn't long after, a year or two later, he wrote the Schleitheim Confession of Faith in the town of Schleitheim. A very familiar um, confession of faith that we have to this day. And, and he was able to unify Anabaptism and, and the, some of the, the, the disorganized 
things that were happening, he was able to bring some unity to that. But anyway, Michael Sattler was arrested soon after the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. He was arrested with a copy of it in his possession, and the authorities recognized him as a prominent man, and uh, they were going to do with him what they wanted to do. They had a trial it lasted several days. The Catholics were the ones who were prosecuting and, and trying Michael Sattler, and they treated him very disrespectfully, um, very arrogantly uh, at his trial. And Michael Sattler had, I think it was eight charges brought against him by the Catholics. I'm not going to take the time to go into those, but he was given the opportunity to speak, and he gave a very, very well-done defense against those um, charges that were brought against him. And, it, and even his enemies later said that Michael Sattler, in everything he did and said, was a gentleman. And he, he demonstrated the spirit of gentleness and meekness, even though he was willing to speak the truth and he told them to the face. But they condemned him to die and his sentence was that he was to be taken to the town square, he was to have his tongue cut out, and then they were to chain him or forge him somehow to a wagon, and while he was chained to the wagon, he was to have twice have um, his flesh torn from him by hot um, tongues, um, blacksmith's tongues. They were to, to take those and tear the flesh from his body and, and then take him out of the city and on the way to his execution do that again five times. And finally, he was to be burned at the stake. And they carried this out. Treated him in a terribly cruel, probably died one of the cruelest deaths of the martyrs in that time they did that. They, they cut out his tongue. At least they tried. They got part of it. They didn't get all of it because he could still talk. They tore his flesh with the hot tongues and forged him to the wagon. While they were going to the execution, they did it five more times. And they brought him to the place where he was to be burned they tied a bag of gunpowder to him, I guess, to, to try to speed things up a little bit, and um, tied him to a ladder and pushed him into the fire. And Michael Sattler, um, in all of those, in all of that cruelty and all of that terrible suffering, he did nothing but bless them. He did nothing but bring praise to the Lord. He was able to do that, yet he was able to speak. And when he was pushed into the fire, as soon as his hands were, as soon as his, the ropes were burned that were holding his hands, he raised his hands in victory to let his brothers know that were there that the grace of God was with him during that time. Just a tremendous example of somebody who was willing 
to suffer for the sake of Christ and who was able to have the grace of God be a part of that experience. It carried him through. It was there. The divine influence of God was on his life right to the end. And his brothers and sisters and everybody there knew, saw that the divine influence and favor and grace of God was upon his life by his example and by his testimony. There was others who were, who were uh, killed with him. They were killed by, by beheading, I think. And later on, his wife also was uh, drowned. A few days later, they tried. They tried desperately to get her to recant. Um, every time before they would kill another, they would try to get her to recant, and she stood firm to the end. I am sure the grace of God that she saw in her husband and in his, in the experience that he went through was something that sustained her was something that she saw that she could have to go through that as well. I'll just close with a few words from uh, Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Uh, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That verse where Peter says, the God of all grace, after you have suffered a while, he's called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ. But he says that God of all grace will comfort you, will perfect you, will establish you, will strengthen you, will settle you. That's the divine influence upon our lives. That's the favor and blessings, the sustenance of God that he can put on our lives no matter what situation we may face. Let's kneel for prayer.